Q&A is taking a summer break and using this opportunity to dip into our Q&A archives. We'll showcase some of the year's programs you might have missed or might want to check out again. Host Susan Swain will introduce this week's selection. Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. There are six generations alive in the United States right now, but in their formative years, they progress from the silence and boomers' collective TV watching to Gen Zers' social media individualism. Add to that the enormous demographic changes we've seen and generation-shaping events like 9-11 and the 2008 recession. Wonder what all this means for the social fabric of our country? Psychologist Dr. Jean Twenge joins us this week to discuss her latest book, Generations, The Real Differences Between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers, and Silence, and What They Mean for America's Future. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. Dr. Jean Twenge, your new book, Generations, uh, is just out, and we are talking on the heels of a new report by the U.S. Surgeon General on what he calls an epidemic of loneliness in the United States, hitting young people especially hard. He's warning of consequences, not only for individuals' health, but also for the social fabric of our nation. When I read that report yesterday, it seemed to track with what you're saying in your new book. Yeah, it really does. So this is something I started to notice almost 10 years ago that right around 2012, uh, more teens in these big national surveys started to say that they felt lonely. They started to say they felt left out and that feeling of loneliness just grew and grew and grew, you know, so that was there even before the pandemic isolated teens from each other. So this is an issue that um, is really serious. The Surgeon General is absolutely right because loneliness has consequences for mental health. It has consequences for physical health, especially when we're thinking about teens who are developing their social skills. This is a big problem. So you have described this book to uh, folks in the press, uh, which is your seventh, but your third really deep diving on generational characteristics as, as your magnum opus. What did, what did you want to accomplish with this project? Yeah, so I, I've written books on individual generations, usually the new and upcoming generation before. But this is my first book to look at all six living American generations. And my goal here is really to help the generations understand each other better because there's so many stereotypes and myths and rumors about what the differences are among the generations. So I wanted to go into as much data as possible, you know, go straight to the source, not think about observations, but of, of, you know, say managers about younger people, which is common, but instead, what does each generation have to say about themselves, about how they're spending their time, about how they're feeling, about what's important to them? So I dug into the national surveys, um, including about 39 million people for this book. And how many different data sets did you deal with? It was 24. Um, so a few of those are small one-time polls, but the reason you get the big numbers and the millions is because a lot of them are um, government funded or government administered big national surveys, many of which have been done across the course of decades. So we can compare generations at the same age. And that's powerful because then we're looking at what's really changed rather than something that might be due to age or life stage. 
You are by training a psychologist. So what took you down the route of data-driven study of generations? Yeah, so um, I, I am a Gen Xer. Uh, in the early 90s, I was working on my uh, college honors thesis. And I noticed that the uh, my fellow undergrads were scoring very differently on a psychology questionnaire than the 1970s test manual said that they should. So this questionnaire had things about assertiveness and leadership, and the women in particular just looked completely different. Made me realize, well, you know, that actually makes sense because roles for women have changed a lot over that 20 year period. So that was my first study on generational differences. And it also, you know, came at the same time that there was a lot of attention being paid to Gen X, but a lot of what was written was guesses. And they would maybe have some census and demographic data, but they would often make these bold assertions like, oh, um, Gen Xers have low self-esteem, but they wouldn't actually have data from psychology questionnaires or another source showing that. So that was another project I ended up doing in graduate school. And it turns out Gen Xers actually express higher self-esteem than boomers did at the same age. So when readers, and this is a book not for social scientists or psychologists, this is a general publication, and you're hoping people will gain what from reading about other generations? Well, you know, perspective taking, trying to understand where someone else is coming from is such a useful thing. It's so useful in personal relationships. It's so useful in the workplace, and it's often hard to do with other generations, whether you're thinking about, you know, older generations understanding younger ones or younger generations understanding older ones. So that's really one of my goals here is to, to help people understand each other better, understand what has really changed over time, what has the biggest impact on our lives, which is often technology, and to put that in the context of how does that explain some of the differences over the generations. Does your data and your analysis help people understand the political polarization we're currently experiencing? I think so. So that's certainly one thing that I look at in the book. So, you know, for one thing, it, it is real that it's not just among politicians. It's not just something that's minor. We can see, you know, real division showing up with more people identifying at the extremes of ideology, more polarization um, between Democrats and Republicans on uh, various issues, especially around race. And, you know, I, I think it's good to know well, what does this really look like over time? Not just in a poll at one time where we can't tell what's age and what's generation and what's really changed, but you know, looking at this across decades. And fortunately, there, there's a bunch of studies that have done that. The General Social Survey goes back to the early 70s. The um, American National Election Studies go back to the 1940s. So we can take a really, really broad view on um, a lot of these issues. Staying with that, that thought, if you look at some of the major cultural battles that are being waged today, uh, things like uh, Me Too, Black Lives Matter, gender, gender identification, book banning in schools, does your work help us understand whether or not these are generational or uh, partisan issues? Yeah, well, there, there's some of both. And you know, clearly there's partisan positions on, on all of those issues, which have become you know, more polarized and contentious, especially in the last few years. But I do think it helps to understand some of the 
change to see, well, you know, how how much is this really different? You know, is it really different um, now than 10 years ago or 20 years ago? And is there a generational element to that? So I, I noticed kind of as one general theme that there is, in terms of political beliefs and a lot of these hot button cultural issues, the generational break is often between boomers and Gen Xers on one side, generally the more conservative side, and millennials and Gen Z on the other side, generally the more liberal or progressive side. So in particular, I noticed in reading a lot of accounts of issues around free speech and cancel culture, that's very often where the generational break was. There'd be a Gen Xer on one side saying, no, we need to publish all views. We need to allow speakers from, you know, with many different viewpoints. And then, you know, whether it's the university or at a company, then it's often the millennial and Gen Z younger employees who say, no, we can't do that. We have to cut this off and this is too offensive to be published or we have to put out the statement on a political bill. That's often where the generational break is. And I think given that there is that generational element to a lot of these issues, it's even more important to you know, try to get to the heart, you know, what these differences are. Because I, I think generational conflict right now is as large as it was, as big as it, it has been since the late 1960s, when it was the boomers, you know, sparring with their parents who didn't understand their point of view. Now, people get their news and their facts from so many different sources, and that is true across generations. So there's a lot of misunderstanding out there. We took, uh, you tell people there are currently six generations in the United States that are alive, and we, uh, we've created a graphic so that as we're talking about them, people will have some sense. I'm gonna run through them real quickly. Uh, silence, 25 to 45. Boomer, generation 46 to 64. Gen we should be clear, these are birth years, not ages. Yes, right. Birth years, 1965 to 1979. <clears throat> the millennial generation, 1980 to 1994. Gen Z, which you've already referred to as well, 1995 to 2012. And the newest generation, we've got the name Polars with quote marks around it because it's something you've dubbed that generation. Mm -hmm. uh, is there a name developing for the youngest of us yet? So those born 2013 and later, they're sometimes called alphas. And that's based on the idea of, oh, we have um, all of the generations, you know, named with letters like Gen X and then millennials were going to be Gen Y and then that fell out of favor. And then Gen Z, well, with Gen Z, we run out of letters in the regular alphabets. So the idea is let's go back to the beginning, but use the Greek alphabet. I'm not a big fan of the letters. They're not very creative. They're not very descriptive. Um, so for that post-2013 generation, I call them polars, after melting polar ice caps and political polarization. So past theories, uh, as you tell your readers, were they marked the generation by the major events they'd experienced, such as World War I or 9-11 or the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, you have a very different theory that generations are defined by technological change. Explain. Yeah, so that is, that's the traditional theory that generational viewpoints are shaped by when they experience certain events. But I think what that doesn't acknowledge is that major events tend, with a few exceptions, tend not to have a long-term impact on day-to-day -day life, you know, how we live our lives, the, the course of our lives. 
what does have that impact on day-to-day life is changes in technology. So technology, not just the internet, but things like better medical care and washing machines and airplanes and air conditioning, these are the things that make living right now completely different from what it was like to live 150 years ago or even 20 years ago. And that's what really leads to generational differences because there's the direct impact of technology and then there's downstream impacts. Things like individualism, more focus on the self and less on others. You know, a cultural viewpoint that leads to more quality, but also leads to more disconnection. That's based in technology. Technology makes individualism possible. Technology also tends to lead to, it's called a slow life strategy. So when, because we live longer and education takes longer, those things are both due to technology. And when you have a slow life strategy, you have more time. So every stage of the life cycle slows down. And this is a piece where there's a lot of misunderstanding across generations, but it's something that's happening to, to everybody, you know, from infancy to old age. So children are less independent. Teens are less likely to do adult things like get a driver's license or have a paid job. Young adults take longer to get married and have children and settle into a career. And middle-aged people feel and look younger than their parents or grandparents did at the same age. So it's the idea of 60 is the new 50. So it's really affected everybody in a major way. Generations uh, with uh, in the last week or so that it's been out is already creating a lot of discussion on social media, a little pushback from the millennial generation and the like. And I'm wondering why you think the discussion of generations characteristics can be so controversial. Yeah, you know, there is a natural defensiveness anytime you start talking about differences among groups. And that's not even unique to generations. If you talk about the differences between men and women, you'll also get people talking and disagreeing and saying that, well, this doesn't apply to me or my friends and so on. Absolutely true. You know, I've, I've felt that way many times seeing studies um, of, I don't know, one of my favorites is, you know, word uses on um, Facebook and they looked at sex differences and for the, cl- the word cluster for women, you know, shopping was the biggest word right in the middle. I was like, oh, I hate that. You know, I don't like shopping and I'm, that's, that's embarrassing. And then I'm like, wait, you know, this is a scientific study. It's looking at the differences on average. It doesn't have to necessarily characterize me. It just means that's what they found on average. And the same is true for generations, that I, that's what is often hard to do, but is the best thing to do when you're looking at this type of research, just take a step back and realize this isn't necessarily a, a, about me. Yes, it may describe my group, but that's on average, and there's plenty of variation across the generations as well. Because we only have an hour together, I really wanted to focus on some of the younger generations beginning um, with Gen X. But before we get to longer conversations about the most recent, would you spend just a minute on the two older generations, silent and baby boomers? Um, Starting with the silent generation, those born up until 1945, what are some of the characteristics of those folks? So it's often forgotten. A lot of people say to me, well, I haven't even heard of the silent generation. So they got their name in the late 40s, early 50s, when they were relatively quiet. They were married and young, having their kids young. So that's where they got the label, but it turned out to be a huge misnomer 
is the silence were the leaders of the civil rights movement and the feminist movement. So their two most famous members, Martin Luther King Jr., Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And what were their contributions to society that are different than perhaps perceptions? Well, I think there's a very strong perception that a lot of those changes around equality were due to boomers, but it was really the silence who started those battles for equality, got the laws changed, and then the boomers lived a lot of those changes, and the boomers often changed the hearts and minds or had their own hearts and minds changed you know, in, in this direction. But it was really the silence who were behind, you know, the initial push um, for equality based on race and gender and sexual orientation as well. You think about Stonewall, that was mostly silence. Baby boom generation. First of all, how large a cohort was it? Is it? I mean, it's enormous. So if you look at the, you know, any graph of total fertility or birth rates, I mean, it's just incredible how high that was, you know, for the baby boomer generation. So total fertility, which is this measure of like the number of children uh, a woman will have if her behavior's the same as people in that year. It was 3.7 in 1957. That's when it peaked. So that meant the average woman had ground up four children. And now, of course, it's one or two. So the, those birth rates are just much higher than they were in the 1920s, 1930s. Um, and they, you know, demographers expected a little bit of a bump after World War II, but then it just kept going. And that's really followed baby boomers at every stage of their life cycle because of their sheer size. They have dominated the culture at every stage. Why do you call baby boomers a chameleon generation? Well, it's interesting, you know, maybe because of their size, the variations within the boomer generation seem to be a little more noticeable. So, for example, they were the hippies of the 1960s, but then also the yuppies of the 1980s. And we can see that in their political views, too. So that American National Election Study is a great example. You can see boomers there move from being very liberal in the 1970s to almost overnight, it seems like in the 80s, shifting to much more conservative. So this is really a story about technological change and how it's impacted uh, generations in our society. So what was the baby booms were the first TV generation, but you also call them really the last collective generation in the country. Explain that, please. Yeah. So so individualism and collectivism really shapes um, a lot of worldviews. And boomers started to explore the self in the you know late 1960s, early 1970s is one of the th things they're the most known for. But their childhood was in the much more collectivistic 1950s and early 1960s for the most part. So they had that collectivistic childhood and then rebelled against that world in many ways as they got older. And it's always been fascinating to me how the way that they rebelled against it was in groups. So that they attended protests and asked seminars and things like that in a way that Gen X looks at and go, if you're going to be an individual, why would you do it in a group? But that was the baby boomer way of kind of melding those two things. And then, of course, boomers were also very shaped by television. That was the technology which arguably had the most impact on them 
um, as young people. And television built a number of things among boomers, you know, one of which was just an emotional immediacy that if you think about someone like Oprah, she's in many ways a quintessential baby boomer because of her confessional style that you open up about many different topics. That was something that the boomers really pioneered. Their parents thought that was odd, that their parents thought there are things you don't talk about. And boomers tried to break through that and say, no, we're going to, we're going to talk about women's issues. We're going to talk about cancer. You know, there's not going to be things that are as taboo. It was also the last American generation with the draft into military service. Uh, which meant that the war was much more a part of, of many people's lives, unlike today with the volunteer army. Uh, what impact did that have on the boomer generation's attitudes? Yeah, it's it's interesting to me that you compare two of the Cold War conflicts, Korea, where that was a silence being drafted, and there were really no protests against the draft and Vietnam, where of course there were. And this is another place where you see, you know, those divisions in the boomer generation that, yeah, with, with the draft, I agree completely. It was much more a part of the culture. It was much more something that, that people were discussing every day. And it really led to that split between those who went to Vietnam and came back as veterans and those who didn't, you know, and who were protesting and, you know, there's a lot of political divides based around that. Sure, and as you're describing, I'm also thinking the Korean War was not fought in people's living rooms. Vietnam was because of television, another technological change in yeah. that generation. Yeah, exactly, and that that might might be another reason, you know, why there were more more protests, you know, around the draft for that war. I think it's individualism played a role as well, but so did technology. So we're gonna talk a little bit more in depth about Gen X and a reminder for our viewers and listeners, 1965 to 1979. And like the silence before them, this is a much smaller generation. Why did that happen? Why were they smaller? Yeah, well, you know, the birth rate was so high uh, for the baby boom generation. It just, it, it, it couldn't continue arguably. And then there was just a really big shift in the culture. Uh, starting in the mid-1960s, and that's when the birth rate really started to go down, that it was just not as pronatalist and um, much more individualistic. So the boomers had fewer children than their parents before them. And you end up you know, with a, just a, a much smaller generation with Gen X. A couple of, of items I jotted down from that chapter on the Gen X the generation is slippery and hard to define. It's more defined by what it isn't. What are you saying there? Yeah, so possibly because Gen X is a small generation, bookmarked, you know, on the other side by large, the larger generation of the boomers and, and the millennials, um, Gen X is often ignored. Um, I'm a Gen Xer myself. So, you know, we're the middle child of generations. Um, that's true now with uh, the generations on either side, but it's also true because you know the middle child's often ignored. That's the uh, the usual narrative, and it's it's true for Gen X. Um, so that's actually why I think the label fits. You know, X is the letter for an unknown quantity, and 
after the juggernaut of the boomers and their youth, when Gen X came along, they were kind of the anti-boomers and they were seen in that way. Even though, somewhat ironically, Gen X continued a lot of trends that the boomers started. In other other ways, they turned some things around and, and you know made a name for themselves in, in other ways, but they continued a lot of the trends in terms of individualism. They just took them to the next level. So you called them a generation of latchkey kids. That might be a term that's not so familiar to younger people. What's a latchkey kid? So it means that you have the key to your house around your neck and you let yourself in after school because your parents are at work. Now, it's interesting that Gen X got known for being latchkey kids because that's a trend. The trend of working mothers started with the boomers and it continued with millennials. It's just that then by the time millennials came around in the 1980s, the, the culture suddenly woke up and realized that they had working mothers, even though they'd been around for decades and said, maybe we need to have some after school child care. And so then the latchkey became a little less common. You say it's a generation full of firsts and a generation full of lasts. Can you give me some examples? Well, mostly it's that Gen X had the last analog childhood. Gen X is the, you know, the last to grow up um, without ubiquitous computers and the internet. And the first, you know, to have that internet adulthood. So that's the main the main distinction, at least in terms of technology. You think about the things that Gen Xers experienced as children, which are gone. Um, some of which we can lament, some of which you could say good riddance, uh, like the typewriter and the card catalog at the library and having to go to the library instead of being able to look things up online. Gen X was the last to experience those things when they were young. And here's a sentence about technology. Many of the foundational websites and technologies that we use today were invented by Gen Xers but now there's a yawning gap with the younger generations and Gen Xers due to the pace of technological change. What are some of those yep. foundational websites and technologies mm -hmm. that we take for granted? Mm -hmm. And uh, Steve Jobs is an example. Is he a Gen Xer? No, Steve Jobs is a, a baby, boomer. A boomer. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, so you can kind of think about it with, um, it, it really, it was the, the, the hardware and the software was boomers. But then when you get to websites, that's when it starts to become Gen X. So YouTube, Google, Yahoo, those are some examples. A lot of what was called Web 2.0 at the time, where it's more involved. Um, and then social media companies, that's mostly millennials, some Gen Xers as well. But what about that yawning gap? Are the Gen Xers not keeping pace with the generations that follow them? Well, Gen X keeps pace in some ways, but I think that there is a fundamental divide around those who grew up, say, were teens before social media existed, and that's Gen X, and then millennials who experienced some of the early years of social media, and then especially Gen Z, who haven't even really known a world without ubiquitous social media. So there's there's a fundamental gap there. Uh, also, you know, one one other place where this comes up a lot is around gender identity and terms around gender identity. So there's a lot of Gen X parents with Gen Z kids and then Gen Z kids speak a language around gender that a lot of Gen X parents have never heard of. 
uh, going back to that discussion that we had about the self and collectivity, uh, in that chapter, you, uh, you noted that this is the generation where the data begins to document more of a focus on self and individualism. And a logical outcome of that is beginning to tr lack trust and authority. Yes, th this is one of the, the biggest changes. And it, this is really across all the generations. It really starts to accelerate as uh, when Gen Xers were the teens and, and young adults. And that's the decline in trust in other people and trust in institutions. So across a bunch of big surveys, you could see this, that that's when it re really starts to turn um, in the 80s, especially the 90s when Gen Xers were the young adults, where trust just starts to fall apart. And what is causing and, that? What's causing the trust yeah, falling apart? Know, I, yeah, I think, I think there's, a, there's a number of, of reasons for that, but technology and media you know, may certainly play a role because you, know, you think about, okay, what did the media landscape used to look like? It used to be basically three channels and an evening newscast. Then you get cable. Then in the 90s, if you remember, you know, the shows like Current Affair, um, Jerry Springer, like all of these types of things start to, to happen where it's infotainment. And to get ratings, you have to cover these things that are a little more sensationalistic. And then we get the internet and what gets clicks, again, is things that are negative, that are sensationalistic, and that builds. Social media builds on that even more. So as we get this more atomized media landscape, it tends to emphasize the negative more. And it tends to build distrust because then can we even agree on the same facts? Those issues start to come up. So these changes just accelerate as time goes on. Which is the generation where the desire for wealth and status really be came markedly noticeable. Yeah, you can really see that with Gen X in the, especially the late 80s and early 90s. Now, to be fair, I think boomers were participating in a lot of this, and a lot of them were in, in their 30s at the time, the whole boomer yuppie idea. But, you know, when you look at young people, you really see this as like a big survey of high school seniors where you can see this, that that's where it peaks. The interest in, um, say, status, the interest in, you know, owning somewhat flashy material things like a boat or a second home peaks with Gen Xers in the early 90s when they were teens. Um, the number of college students majoring in business went way up. Um, during the 80s, when that was uh, Gen X, who was in college at the time, and just a lot more emphasis on materialism, although some of that continued uh, with millennials and even Gen Z. So one of the college student surveys asked, how important is it to be, quote, very well off financially? And that's increased a huge amount starting with Gen X and then continuing to the younger generation. Sure, and the 90s was the big boom in internet wealth. Uh, we're seeing the rise of, of internet multimillionaires. So there was a lot of, uh, of examples in, to, at Gen Xers about wealth being made quickly and with, through technology. Yeah, and it's interesting, just the almost like whiplash change of the 1990s, because early 90s, 1990s. The idea was 
that Gen Xers were slackers and they were all, you know, listening to Nirvana and wearing black and going to the Pearl Jam concert. And it was very anti-materialistic in some quarters, even though for most people it wasn't. And that was the idea that, that it's slackers, anti-establishment. And then very, very quickly that changed. It went from Gen X is never going to make as much money as the boomers did to Gen X doing really well, um, especially in the tech sector, because that's where you know a lot of Gen Xers got jobs and, and you know made their careers. So it is it is interesting to think about you know the generational stereotypes that get set at one time and then it can change within a five-year period and that definitely happened for gen xers in the 1990s the country was also changing demographically you write that gen xers were the first generation <clears throat> excuse me to fully experience a country changed by immigrants yeah you, you really see that one of the the graphs in in the book is just the the percentage of of college students who are Asian and Hispanic um, used to be very small, and then that increased almost exponentially as um, Gen Xers were in college. So you know, Gen Xers are really the first college students to have that experience of just you know going to school with people from you know many different backgrounds. On to the millennials, nineteen. 19- 80 to 1994, 14 years. By the way, why are the, the the bookends of the generations getting shorter as we go along? Because, you know, technological change is accelerating. So that's, I think, why the generations are getting shorter, because things are changing faster. The uh, If the Gen X were the internet generation, the millennials became the social media generation. And uh, you write of them, because of birth control, the millennials were the most planned and most wanted generation in American history. What were the implications of that? Well, there were, there were several things. So one really is around that that slow life strategy. That you know, yeah, when you have more reliable birth control, when education takes longer to finish, parents make the choice to have fewer children and nurture them more carefully, and that's the story of millennials in a nutshell, at least in terms of their childhood, that the standard moved from Gen Xers, where you know many were the youngest children in large families, to millennials, where they were the more protected children, often only children are one of two. So you went from a generation that experienced latchkey uh, lifestyle to a generation that were basically coddled by their parents because there were fewer of them and they were greatly wanted by their parents. Is that right? Well, I wouldn't use the word coddled necessarily. M- more protected for certain. Um, and it, it is important, I think, to point out that more millennials had mothers who are in the workforce than Gen Xers did. It's just that the society came around to the idea first that kids needed more supervision and that has advantages and disadvantages. And second, that, yeah, we actually have families where two parents are working. It took a few decades for the culture to kind of wake up to that. So then there became just more organized programs. So after school programs, for example, um, that, that really came in much more when millennials were children. So they ended up really by necessity because of American life changing that they were more or less watched or supervised more along the way as they were growing up. 
Yes. And that has that has continued. Well, so then help me understand Then you you say that individualism is their core value. So those two things seem counterintuitive to me. Well, I don't think they are. I mean, if you think about individualism and the way that millennials experienced it, one of the ways that they experienced it was their parents expressing to them how special they were, telling them things like you can be anything you want to be and believe in yourself and anything is possible and you are special. These are very, very individualistic messages. They're also just really common messages for boomer parents to have expressed to their millennial children. This is the era where every kid was a winner. Uh, uh, How did that impact their thoughts of of themselves? Yeah. So, you know, this, this, to be fair, this is something that that started with Gen X, the increase in self-esteem, the increase in self-confidence. You know, you can see this in, in books and the language in books that there was more use of words like unique and identity and phrases like you are special. So just a lot of emphasis on feeling good about yourself. What, so, was, what was the impact that at the same time, they were also the most educated generation so far in history? Right, so more millennials have college degrees than any previous generation. So, you know, and I think there, there was a collision in many ways between millennials' childhood of protection and boosting self-esteem and then going to college and then the Great Recession hits and as a huge reality check. That was obviously, you know, tough on, on a lot of levels, but you have, I, I think about it also on a psychological level that you put yourself in the shoes of a millennial who grew up with all of this positivity and optimism and you could be anything you want to be and then reality hits. And it would have been hard even without the recession that just made it even harder because if you've had that somewhat protected existence and then you go out into the world and realize, well, wait a second, the world isn't going to treat me as special. That was always going to be hard. You, you put the Great Recession on top of it and it makes it even harder. Oh, this was one of the areas where an excerpt of your book raised a lot of discussion on social media. You contest the idea that millennials, I'm going to use it in a colloquial expression, got the shaft economically during their generation. But there was the Great Recession. There are two working families. They are saddled with much rising college costs over that period than the earlier generations. So what does the data show about their economics? Yeah. So, you know, it's important to look at, at all the, the stats here and and look at them accurately. So if you look at U.S. Census data on median income, so I looked at 25 to 44-year-olds, and that's mostly almost all millennials now. Median incomes for those families and individuals, personal income too, are at all-time highs, and that is corrected for inflation. So that's an important point that was often missed in a lot of the online discussion about this. That corrects for housing, it corrects for healthcare, it corrects for the cost of cars, um, consumer electronics, toys, like all the things that families buy. So what happened is yes, you see those incomes take a big hit during the Great Recession around 2008, but then they start to come back and they really, really just skyrocket 
after about 2011, when the U.S. economy started to improve. So between 2011 and 2019, the U.S. economy is just on a tear and median incomes corrected for inflation really reflect that. So the other piece is what about wealth building? So the Federal Reserve of St. Louis has looked at this and they made big headlines when they came out saying that millennials might be a lost generation when it comes to wealth, that they weren't keeping up with their parents. They're going to be the first generation and not build as much wealth as their parents. But that was based on data from 2015 when millennials hadn't had enough time to recover from the Great Recession. And in more recent data, millennial wealth is neck and neck with Gen Xers and boomers at the same age. So they have caught up. And important to note, those wealth statistics do take college debt and all debt into account. The other piece is there's this common narrative that millennials are never going to be able to afford houses. Well, if, again, if you look at the U.S. Census data, millennial homeownership, when they're 25 to 39 years old, it's only a couple of percentage points behind Gen X and boomers at the same age, just two percentage points behind. That's it. It's hardly the what you'd expect by reading online about this idea of millennials never own houses. One caveat there is that is data from 2020. The picture now with high prices and high interest rates, that's going to make it much more difficult for especially younger millennials who may not have bought into the market yet. We have a little more than 15 minutes left in our conversation with Dr. Jean Twenke. We're talking about her new book, Generations, trying to understand the differences propelled by technological changes in our society and what it means for the future of our country. A couple more issues on millennials. You say they are the generation that killed religion and killed marriage. Explain, please. Yeah, so just in general, because of individualism and because of the slow life strategy, Millennials, for example, get married a lot later than previous generations did, and fewer of them overall are getting married. I I would not say that they killed marriage necessarily. That's kind of the clickbait headlines that are out there, but it certainly looks different with millennials than it did, say, with boomers who averaged, you know, women married at 21 on average in 1970 when it was the boomers uh, who were in that age group, and now that average age is more like 28. So it does it does look a lot different. And with religion, I put that in the millennial chapter because there's been change across all the generations, but you can really see the change start to accelerate when it was boomers who were teens and, and young adults. So in the 1990s and into the 2000s, that's when many fewer young people started to say that they affiliated with the religion, that they attended religious services, even private religious beliefs started to decline, things like prayer or belief in God. And there's been all these explanations for a long time of, oh, millennials will come back to the church when they have kids. That didn't happen. Um, oh, they're privately spiritual. That's not true either. They're about as spiritual as, as previous generations, but they're much less religious. Oh, it's just public religious observance. They're just as religious privately. That's not true anymore either. So there has been a big shift. To be fair, most millennials do still have some religious belief. It's just that there is a growing group who do not. Let's talk about their attitudes towards racial issues. So here we can start to see more political division that around 2015, 
there was what journalist Matt Iglesias calls the Great Awakening. Not everybody likes that label, but it shows up again and again and again in their survey data that around 2015, there was this pronounced break uh, around issues around race, where it, previously Democrats and Republicans were disagreed, but were not that far apart. And then that started to radically diverge after 2015 in pretty much all attitudes uh, around race. And that I think has, has also, and you can see that even more you know, with millennials and Gen Z, that there's a generational element to that break as well. So that shift of, of Democrats on racial issues was more pronounced among the younger generations. One specific statistic uh, answering a question, racism is a big problem. The progression of uh, percentage of people saying, yes, it is from 20, uh, the earliest time, 25% to 50% in 2015 and 76% by June of yeah. 2020. Those are big yeah. changes in numbers and attitudes. Yeah, it's really, really, really striking. And I, I think that that captures just the national conversation and how that changed you know, in the mid 2010s. On to Gen Z, 1995 to 2012. What do we need to know about them? So Gen Z is the first generation to spend their entire adolescence with the smartphone. So in my previous book on this group, I called them iGen after iPhones because it's had such a big impact on their lives. So, because it's not just that they started, the teens started spending more time online. Teens also spend, started spending a lot less time with their friends face to face in person. So, the way that teens socialize just fundamentally shifted. And that shift started to happen around 2012 um, with teens. So, that's why there's the break between millennials and Gen Z. You know, did you have a smartphone in high school? or not. So perhaps as a result, 2012 also marks the time when teen loneliness started to go up, teen depression started to go up, self-harm, suicide attempts, suicides across the board, whether you're looking at symptoms or behaviors, huge increase in mental health issues among teens and then a few years later among young adults. And that also is a pretty pronounced break between millennials and Gen Z. And of course, impacted by COVID <clears throat> during this time period, exacerbated. Yeah. And I think it's important to note that those increases in teen depression were very, very large even before the pandemic. So the pandemic exacerbated them, but it was not the original cause. Teen depression doubled between 2011 and 2019. That's clinical level depression in a government funded screening survey. So before the pandemic, we already had a huge issue here. One of the, the big topics in the chapter on Gen Z is gender diversity. Yeah. So I was mentioning that earlier that um, Gen X parents have talked to their Gen Z kids about all of these terms around gender that a lot of Gen Xers have never heard of. And we see this in the survey data. So there was a poll, for example, that asked um, about whether you believe that there's more than two genders. And Gen Z is much more likely to believe that there's more than two genders than the other generations. And, and what does that mean? How does that translate itself in, into the debates we're having in society? So I, I think that there's a, definitely a generational element 
to a lot of the discussions around transgender identity and non-binary identity. These are things that Gen Z tends to be more accepting of, and they take it for granted more. What about uh, Gen Z and the speech issue, where it really begins to be an issue that uh, that words become offensive, speakers with points of view become offensive? Why is that a characteristic of this very much tech-oriented generation? Yeah, I think that there's a number of elements here. So one is technology, that as discussion moved online, words became more important. And Gen Z spends more time on online than previous generations did, obviously, and they spend less time face-to-face where physicality is more important. So there's a lot of emphasis on words and this idea of words as, as, as violence. Um, there's the emphasis on safety is another big thing. So with the way parenting has shifted toward more protection, there's been a lot of emphasis on safety. Now, a lot of that is really good, you know, the number of teens who die in car accidents has gone way down. Same thing for the number of children. But there's mission creep in this area. It's become that parents not only protect their kids from physical dangers, they protect them from experiences. And many people have argued this does young people a disservice, that then they're not having these experiences with independence. They're also not having these experiences where face-to-face they are having a disagreement with someone. And that's what we started to see, you know, in college campuses started to get attention around 2013 or so that more speakers are being disinvited. There was much more of an idea we need to have a safe space on campus if you disagree with the speaker. A lot of attention paid to having trigger warnings, just a lot of this protection. Um, Gen Z didn't reject, they didn't rebel against that as teens and young adults. They embraced that culture of safetyism. You've been teaching for a long while. Have you noticed that change among your own students? Um, I've seen I've seen it in some campus controversies. What I've really noticed um, in my students was the shift from the millennial optimism and extroversion and occasional entitlement, much more toward Gen Z being a little less likely to want to talk in class, but very nice. And that entitlement is not there as much. And the data backs that up too. We don't have entitlement per se, but we have data on narcissism showing that among college students, it peaked around the time of the Great Recession around 2008 and then has gone down ever since. These are statistics that I think our listeners will not find very comforting. This is about Gen Z. Four out of 10 Gen Zers believe that the founders of the United States are better described as villains than as heroes and a corollary, only 36% of Gen Zers say they were very or extremely proud to be an American. What's happening? Yeah, so the, those poll results, that just knocked me out of my chair when I saw those, because that question is about heroes versus villains. Only 10% of boomers said they thought the founders should be described as villains. And you know, it, does, it goes hand in hand with negativity about the country in general, because more in Gen Z also says that they think America is not a fair society. More of them say they think fundamental changes to the government are necessary. 
And, you know, Gen Z is also voting in higher rates. If they take that dissatisfaction to work in the system for change, that is going to be a good thing. But there's also this feeling of nihilism, of just really high negativity, not just about things right now, but things 250 years in the past. And, you know, trying to figure out why that's the case is complicated, of course, but at least one element is that there's very high levels of depression. That's very concerning. Depression isn't just about emotions, though. It's also about cognition. It's also about thinking. By definition, depression means that you see the world in a negative light. And I think that's one reason why there's this very high level of pessimism and negativity with Gen Z. And a lot of that's fueled by conversations on social media and how they tend toward the negative. We have about five minutes left. The pollers, or the alpha, as some people call them, there's not much data about them yet because they're so young. What are, are a few clearly defining characteristics of these youngest cohorts in our society? Yeah, so pollers, those born 2013 and later. So these are the little kids during the pandemic. You know, we have a lot of concerns about learning difficulties, you know, based on the years of instruction that they missed. Um, there's some other concerns that this is a generation who spent a lot more time on screens they have not gotten as much exercise childhood obesity is at all-time highs probably because they're not running around outside and they're inside on screens but it's not all negative there's some good data on childhood injuries going down there's also i sometimes come back to this that there's some parallels for polars with the silent generation who were young during the Great Depression and World War II, yet came out on the other side with very good mental health. Even during the pandemic, when they were the senior citizens who were the most at risk, their mental health was better than any other generation. So there may be some strength born out of adversity, and that's my hope for the polars. Your subtitle and also your last chapter, Look to the Future. So spend a minute or two on what all this data about the way we are today suggests for where we're going in the future. Yeah, there, there's there's really, there's so much. So um, there's the birth rate. I don't think the birth rate's going to come up based on the surveys of 18-year-olds that we have where the number of 18-year-olds who said they're likely to have kids stayed really steady between the 1970s until the early 2010s, so for decades, and then it started to go down. So that's Gen Z. I think they're not going to want to have children at the same rate. So that's going to have big, big demographic and political implications. Uh, in the workplace, a lot of managers who will say, I just got used to millennials and now we have Gen Z and Gen Z is so different from millennials, going from the much more optimism and extroversion with millennials to Gen Z, much more uncertain, much more pessimistic. But you know, there was there was a lot of hope um, with work ethic because work ethic was starting to come back up in the surveys of of eighteen year olds um, from millennials to Gen Z, and then it went way down in twenty twenty one. And you know, we saw that anecdotally with quiet quitting. So I think you know it's going to be interesting the next couple of years in the workplace with. Um, Gen Z being almost all the new young employees, the oldest are 28 after all. And then this trying to 
figure out, you know, how much work is going to be virtual, how much is going to be in person. And there's some essential generational tension around those issues. So you have three kids of your own based on all of this study you've done about the impact of technology on their own mental health and the like. How have you uh, approached your own kids and use of technology? Yeah, well, just we tried to just put off smartphones for as long as possible. So my 16 year old um, only got her first smartphone about a month ago. Up to that point, she had a flip phone. So she said it became part of her identity because she was the only kid who had a flip phone. Uh, our 13 year old has uh, a thing called a gab phone. So that means they can call and text and take pictures only. So there's no ability to download social media, for example. And our 11 year old doesn't have a phone at all. So we've just tried to set some limits in this area. Um, it is a constant battle because they have school laptops and the school laptops have YouTube. So it's hard to tell when they're doing their homework and when they're watching YouTube. So I, I think this is the reason why many parents are, are, are frustrated. It's, it's very hard to try to find that balance with technology with your kids. One of the reasons is you don't need parental permission to get a social media account. So when people say, well, you know, why are all these 10 year olds on social media? Where are the parents? Because the parents often don't know that their kids have an account because they can just open it without parental permission. And there's there's no um, stringent age verification either. So you're beginning to hear debates in Washington, D.C. about those are oh, that would be one of the reforms that might be necessary yeah. going forward. There's so much more in your book uh, and we'll invite readers to deep dive into the generations and the way things have changed over not really very long period of time in our history. Uh, thanks for being with us. Dr. Jean Twenge, who is, a new, her new book is Generations, The Real Differences Between Gen Z, Millennials, Boomers, and Silence, and What They Mean for America's Future. Thanks for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. 